The year was 1928. A 16-year-old South Dakota farm girl named Minka Disbrow, she was a Dutch girl, she got pregnant under absolutely horrendous circumstances. She was incredibly naive. She knew absolutely nothing about how babies were made. She didn't even know what had happened to her after she had been attacked. Her parents sent her away to a Lutheran home for unwed teenage mothers, and there the staff explained to her everything that had happened to her. She gave birth on May 22nd, 1929, to a little girl who she saw just one time and then placed for adoption. Every year following on May 22nd, Minka would wish that little girl a very happy birthday wherever in the world she may be. All she had was one tiny black and white photograph of her baby girl laying in a crib. That's all she had. And then every once in a while on May 22nd, she would pray this prayer, Lord, if you would just let me see that child just one more time. The baby was adopted and given the name Ruth Lee. She grew up to have a really full life, six children of her own. One of her children became an astronaut. She lived a very interesting life. When she was almost 80 years old, Ruth Lee had to have open heart surgery. She decided at that point in time she ought to learn about the medical history of her biological parents. What she thought would be a search through obituaries and medical records ended up becoming a phone call because quite to her amazement, not only did she find out who her biological mother was, she found out that after almost 80 years that her biological mother was indeed still alive. She met her birth mother for the very first time when she was 77 years old. This is a picture of the two of them. That's Minka on the right, her daughter on the left. Mother and daughter meeting for the very first time after 77 years. Minka said she was shaking like a leaf that day. Those two were recently together again to celebrate Minka's 100th birthday. And here's what she said. It was like we were never, ever apart. It's like we've known each other our whole lives, Ruth said. Wow. There's really nothing like the miracle of a mother's love, is there? I'm so incredibly grateful for my mom. I'm so incredibly grateful for Dana being the mom of all of our kids. Being a mom is an incredibly noble calling, isn't it? And so with that in view, we as a church family just want to say thank you. We want to honor those of you who love with a mom's love. Will you just give it up for moms today? We love you, moms. We hold you in very, very high regard, moms. And the journey of a mom is really remarkable and never really ends, does it? And it never ends because there's this spiritual principle we're actually going to talk about today as we continue this series called Measuring Up to the 80s. It's about us measuring what a win is for us as a church family. And moms, you know this spiritual principle intuitively with your kids. You're doing this with your kids. Dads, you do this with your kids as well. And it's this principle of coach up coaches, meaning I'm a disciple that makes disciples. That means I'm a person who's multiplying the life of Christ that's inside of me into the life of others. Because see, it's your and my responsibility. After we get saved, after we cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, whatever you want to call it, our responsibility is to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ into all kinds of other people around us. That includes our kids, it includes our families, it includes our neighbors, it includes our colleagues, it includes our roommates, it includes our classmates. It's about we who are followers of Jesus Christ reproducing the life of Jesus into the life of others so that they can go reproduce the life of Jesus into their kids and their families and their neighbors and their colleagues and their roommates and their class and on and on and on 
it goes. But see, in order for that to happen, we, and by we I mean like all the we's in the room, all of us, can't ever be just warming the Christian bench, biding our time until we die or Jesus comes back to get us. Bench warming will never ever get it done. Even the most faithful church attendance will never ever get it done. Because see, God's kingdom multiplication strategy necessitates the very thing that this song gets at, so you should give this a listen. coach I'm ready to play today not not tomorrow put me in coach I'm ready to play 
today. That's the core of everything that it means to be a disciple who makes disciple, a disciple who coaches up coaches. And Jesus, who really is the ultimate coach, right, big C coach, he makes it really, really clear how his kingdom prerogative is meant to roll out. It all starts with the Great Commission, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it all starts right there. Here's what Jesus says, and he's talking to every person who follows him, not just an elite few, not just a select few. He's talking to every person who claims the name of Jesus Christ, and he says these words, therefore go. That's a command, by the way. Therefore go and make disciples another command of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. If that doesn't scream, put me in, coach, I don't know what does. Go and make disciples. Show of hands, how many of you have kids? How many of you are parents? Whoa, like a whole mess of you. Way to go. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever have those times in your parenting experience where you're trying not to be real pushy with your kids, right? Those times when I call it you're trying to love and logic your kids, right? You're trying to help them see like the upside of doing the right thing, the upside, the benefit of them doing the thing that you're asking them to do, the thing that you're like begging and cajoling and pleading with them to do, but they're not doing, ever have that happen? They're not doing it, right? They're not obeying it. They're dragging their feet. They're making excuses. It's like, isn't it, that they're treating your command as a mere suggestion for the way that they could be spending. Do you ever have those, right? We all have those moments. You say something like this, clean your room. Ever say that to your kids? Yeah, you go clean your room. And here's what it sounds to your kids like. Hey, when you're so inclined, may I suggest that one of the many ways that you could spend your discretionary hours would be to bring organization and beauty to your living space. And I know it's a major downer. This is what your kids hear. I know it's a major downer to have to spend your discretionary hours cleaning your room. So you, you just get to it whenever you're good and ready to get to it, long after you play with the neighbors at the park and long after you're finished doing anything and everything that you'd rather do that's more fun than bringing beauty and organization to your living space. This is just a suggestion of one of the many ways that you could spend your discretionary hours. Right? They take your command and they hear it as if it were just a suggestion. It's like this nearly universal thing that happens, parents and kids treating commands as if they're mere suggestions. And I'd suggest that it's the very same thing that a whole bunch of followers of Jesus Christ have done with what they call Jesus' Great Commission. And this is where the zinger comes, right? Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, what some of us maybe in this room have done with Jesus' Great Commission. We've taken his command, go and make disciples. We've taken his command to do the very thing that he did with his 12, and we've turned it into like this suggestion. Yeah, We'll get to that, Jesus, when we're good and ready. Moms, how many times have you said that line? How many times do I have to tell, ever said that, mom? How many times do I have to tell you to, and then, right, you fill in the blank, and it's like a different blank every time, right? And you kind of imagine in this moment, Jesus putting on his mom hat, and he's going like, seriously, how many times do I have to? I made sure that this command, 
the Great Commission got like feature promotion. It's the only thing in all the scriptures, by the way, that's called the Great Commission. And I did that to like set, this is Jesus talking to like set it apart, right? The last thing I said. And then I made this very dramatic exit to ascend to the right hand of God, the Father. I said the Great Commission and then I was gone. And I thought it would like be this great exclamation point punctuating one of the most important things that I ever said. Jesus goes to incredibly great lengths, doesn't he, to make sure that we, his church, followers of his, are on the same page with every single thing that he wants us to be about until we die or until he comes back to get us. And yet so many followers of Jesus Christ have taken his great commission and just turned it into this like nice suggestion. And lots and lots of Jesus' followers have made an awful lot of stuff, haven't we? Some people have made a lot of money, and some people have made a lot of business, some people have made a lot of mistakes, some people have, well, made a lot of children. Some of them have made a lot of societal contributions. Some followers of Jesus Christ have made a lot of really, really generous donations and contributions. Some followers of Jesus Christ have made a lot of people really, really, really happy. Some followers of Jesus Christ have made some really, really important discoveries. Some followers of Jesus Christ have made an awful lot of really convincing arguments on a whole lot of stuff. But the tragic truth is that not a lot of followers of Jesus Christ have made a lot of disciples. And that's just reality. Not a lot of followers of Jesus Christ have made the very thing that Jesus said is the most important thing in the whole entire world to be making, which are disciples. To many, many people, the Great Commission has just become the great suggestion, something you do when you run out of other things to do, which hasn't happened yet for a lot of followers of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus sort of puts his arm around us. He's the great coach, right? The ultimate coach. And he makes it really, really clear, guys, this is how my kingdom prerogative is meant to roll out. It's person to person to person to person. You go scoop up somebody and you put your arm around that person and you show and you tell and you teach them every single thing it looks like to know and follow and be a disciple and to share your faith and to make more disciples. You, you, go, you go do that. And we start talking like this in the church and people all of a sudden really start freaking out, don't they? We start talking about every single one of us making disciples and we get really, really scared. Why do we get really, really scared? Because people say, I don't know how to make a disciple. I don't know how, right? That's what scares us. I don't know how to, that sounds good. I'm not opposed to it. I, I just freak out because I don't know how to make a disciple. But get this, there shouldn't be any freaking out when it comes to disciple making. Because the whole idea is that you're simply replicating the process that somebody either took you through or that somebody is now taking you through and you go do that with somebody else. I'm doing with another person what somebody did with me. A little later in the New Testament, after Jesus' great commission, the Apostle Paul, one of the great Christians who ever lived, he sort of restates the great commission in what I call profound multiplication terms. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It's easy to remember because it's like 2T22, right? Anybody can remember that. You, this is Paul talking. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Paul's saying, everything I've been saying has a lot of credibility because these really reliable people are testifying to its credibility. I'm not just some harebrained crackpot, right? Now, he says, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Paul's saying this discipleship thing is about you going and multiplying the life of Christ that's in you 
into the lives of other people. We're not just adding here. Now, when you're a little kid, addition, when you learn how to do it, it's really cool, right? You can take one and you can put this little plus sign and another one underneath it, draw a line, and well, what do you have? Whoa, you have two. That's pretty cool, right? But we're not talking addition anymore. Paul's talking multiplication, and multiplication is like the coolest thing ever. You take the plus sign and you roll it over just a little bit, and it turns into this X, and now you're multiplying. Two times two equals four, and that's what making disciples is all about. It's about multiplying the life of Christ that's in you into the lives of others who will multiply the life of Christ that's in them into others. Multiplication. On and on and on it's meant to go. And then Paul does this really cool deal. He presses Jesus' kingdom multiplication strategy. He sort of draws us back to it and takes it to this quite surprising, but reminds us that it lands in this really surprising place and it's outside the church building and it's outside the church office and it's outside the church classroom. And look at where this lands. First Thessalonians chapter two, verses seven and eight. As apostles of Christ, he's talking to this church in the town of Thessalonica and he says, look, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you. We could have like asked you to take offerings for us, he's saying, and we could have put this sort of burden on you, but we didn't do that. Instead of being a burden, we were like children among you. Or, let me say it another way, he says, we were like a mother feeding and caring for her. We were treating you just like a mom treats her own kids, feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much, he said, that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. We gave you everything. We gave you our very selves. We poured our lives into you that much. Paul's reminding us that Jesus' kingdom multiplication strategy is to go and to be and to become this one really cool word. It's a really big word, especially on a day like this. And you know what the word is? Family. Making disciples is really all about family. It's the very same discipleship paradigm that Jesus established with his 12 disciples. It's the very same discipleship paradigm that Jesus leaves us with via the Great Commission. It's all about family. Because anytime you go and make a disciple, you put your arm around somebody and you say, come on, let's go, let's follow Jesus together, let me show you the way, that disciple all of a sudden becomes family. And in order for our disciples to become disciples who make disciples, they're going to become part of our wider extended family. We're going to be like spiritual moms and dads to them. Lots of feeding, lots of time, lots of, well, yeah, changing dirty diapers, lots and lots and lots of investment. And there's all kinds of moms in the room. There's all kinds of parents in the room. So you already know this, most of you. But what does every single parent want for their kids more than anything? doesn't matter if it's children who are part of your nuclear family, if it's spiritual children, people you're discipling. And so what does every parent want for their kids more than anything? You know the answer? You want your kids to far exceed you, don't you? You want your kids to like far exceed you in every way possible. We want our kids to like blow us out of the water, which is exactly why Paul makes this sort of familial investment in people that he made because he wanted his disciples to far exceed him and we should want the exact same thing with our nuclear families and with our wider extended spiritual family. Coaching up coaches is the very thing that Jesus Christ did it's the very thing that he himself was about, and he's like calling us to it again and again and again. Now see, in Christ's day, there were two models of discipleship. There was the Greek model and there was the Hebrew model. The Greek model, what's it primarily about? One word, 
teaching. The Greek model of discipleship is primarily about teaching, right? Like guys like Socrates, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, 1989, right? I really, I do know how to say Socrates. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, Alexander the Great. The Greek model, what's it all about? Enlightenment and information that pleases the mind, isn't it? Oh, Socrates, you are so, like, like long white beards, pipes. Oh, you are so brilliant. You've enlightened me so great. I don't know if they had accents, but it makes everything sound that much more intelligent. Right, you add an accent and you're brilliant all of a sudden. Information that pleases the mind. But then there's, that's the Greek model, but then there's the Hebrew model. What's it primarily about? On-the-job training. It's primarily about on-the-job training. Which one did Jesus use to make his disciples? Hebrew, on-the-job training. He took his 12 disciples, and what did he do? He went places with them. They experienced things together. He taught them things about what it was they were experiencing. They practiced it again and again and again. Jesus took them back and reviewed what they did, how it went, and then he sent them out to do the very same thing all over again. And Jesus says, you, my church, you who are to be pouring your lives into others who will go pour their lives into others is all still supposed to be about on-the-job training in real-life contexts. Here's how Jesus did it. It was about instruction in real-life contexts. Now, I want to be really careful here, but the church is really, excuse me, really, really good at creating these artificial contexts, right? One of the artificial contexts the churches use is called a classroom, You take people out of their authentic environment, you put them in confined spaces, you tell them what to do, how to think, and then you send them out to do and think like you just told them to do. But that wasn't Jesus' model. That was not his approach. That's a very Greek approach. Jesus instead made the whole world his classroom. Every single place he and his disciples went was their laboratory or laboratory. As they were going was the byline of Jesus' disciple-making instruction. It was about instruction in real-life context. And then Jesus was huge on demonstration, wasn't he? In real-life context. Jesus not only taught his disciples in parables, he was always and perpetually showing them something, demonstrating something, casting crystal-clear vision of what their life would look like to go from here to there, a preferred vision of the future. Jesus was always fleshing out truth right in front of them. Remember the time Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, Lord, would you please teach us how to pray? Now, why'd they ask that question? Because they had seen and heard Jesus doing what? Praying. They had seen Jesus go up on the mountain, and when he came back from praying, incredible things happen. And Jesus' disciples, they were starting to get hungry and thirsty to know what it was that Jesus knew, who it was that Jesus knew. And so they started saying things like, hey, I want some of that. Jesus was demonstrating his relationship with God in real life context, and his disciples started wanting more of God in their own lives. Jesus also made sure that his disciples had exposure of their own in real life context. He took his disciples into all kinds of situations and let them try stuff. It's like riding a bike with training wheels on. There's Jesus. He's right there. His disciples, they couldn't screw things up too badly because, well, Jesus could fix pretty near anything, well, anything that went 
haywire, and they got to flesh out what God was doing in and through them in very real life contexts. And just like any great sports coach does, Jesus made sure that accountability and assessment were always part of the process. Accountability and assessment were always part of the process. His disciples, they would go out and try something, experiment with something, then they'd come back and they'd debrief it, they'd talk about it, and it wasn't in some sterile classroom somewhere, it wasn't in the laboratory, but in real life context, as they were going. That was Jesus' model for making disciples, life on life on life on life on life, real life context. Now, I'm gonna close with this. If you know anything about church history, you know that Jesus' discipleship model did really, really well for about the first 300 years of the church. In the first 300 years of the church, the church grew explosively, exponentially via Jesus' model. Followers of Jesus Christ reproducing followers of Jesus Christ who reproduced followers of Jesus Christ. On and on and on it went. But then in 313, what happened? You know what happened? Emperor Constantine, he made Christianity the state-established religion. He ordered every single person to become a Christian. And some of us were like, whoa, that'd be sweet, right? That would be awesome. Finally, a Christian. No, not so fast. It's actually the very worst thing that ever happened to the movement of Jesus Christ was when Constantine officially ordered everyone to become a Christian. Why? Why would that be so bad? Well, because it forced, his order forced people who were not Jesus lovers, who didn't give a rip about God, who didn't give a rip about Jesus Christ, forced them to become part of the Christian church. And all of a sudden, like overnight, the church of Jesus Christ went from being this vibrant body, a community thriving with reproduction and the life of Christ, and turned it into a very sterile institution. Bam. Just like that. And so ever since, see, 313... The church has been struggling to come back to reproducing itself the way Jesus intends us to reproduce ourselves. One disciple, one disciple, one disciple, one disciple at a time. You put your arm around somebody and you say, come on, let's go. Let me multiply the life of Christ that's in me into you and then you go do that very, it's nothing to freak out about. You go do that very same thing. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would and ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, move into a posture of prayer and listening to the Lord if you would. Right now I'm gonna ask you to grab something to write on. Grab a card out of the chair pocket in front of you, grab a notes page, grab a gum wrapper, old groceries, I don't care what it is, just grab something to write on and something to write with. And here's what I want you to think about while you're grabbing something. Could you imagine what it would look like if every single one of us, just us gathered in this room right here, if we multiply the life of Christ that's in us into the life of somebody, could you imagine what the world would, how the world would be different, how our town would be different, how our schools would be different, how our workplaces would be different? Could you, could you imagine if you scooped someone up, put your arm around them and said, come on, let's go. 
I'm following Jesus and I want to follow Jesus with you and I want to show you some stuff about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then you challenge that person to go do the very, could you imagine? Just with the hundreds of us in this room right now, the change would be dramatic. Like palpable, noticeable, right on the surface. You wouldn't have to dig around. It would be, it'd be intense. And so here's my question for you, every single one of us. Who is it? Who? Who's the person you're going to invite along, who you're going to reproduce the life of Christ that's in you into them so that they can reproduce the life of Christ that's in them? Who is it? Just write their name. I know you know their name. Just write it. That person. Yes. Them. Who is it? Right underneath that, here's the next question. When are you going to have that asking conversation with them? When are you going to invite that person into your spiritual family? To be just like, as Paul said, like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. Who is it? And when are you going to ask them? is it? And when are you going to ask him? And oh Jesus, I lift up all of these names to you that are written down on all these gum wrappers and grocery shopping lists and notes pages and information cards and we lift them all up to you and we hold them up to you, Jesus. And we pray, use us in the lives of these people please Jesus and then Jesus will you use the lives of these people who are written on these pieces of paper bits of paper would you use their lives in the lives of others and would you use those people in the lives of others Jesus that it would always and forever be about you and what you're doing and what you've asked us to be about and do and make our lives about thank you that it's not shrouded in mystery that we don't have to wonder that it's just right there go and make disciples may we take your command very very seriously Jesus we own it Give us courage as we make those asks this week. We wouldn't put it off. We wouldn't delay it. We wouldn't excuse ourselves out of it. Give us great courage to just go and make disciples your way.